Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. What's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz, and today I want to talk about one of my favorite himbos and uh, who I believe is a singer, but I can't say I've ever heard any of his songs. I thought he was the one that sang That's What Makes You Beautiful, but I've learned that uh, that's not him. But he's great. He is. He is Sean Mendez. And I started to jot down some notes in preparation for today. The way I used to approach a lot of these up tops was I would sort of like write them almost like, you know, features. And then I would sort of, you know, repeat what I had written verbatim or sometimes, you know, meander a little bit. But I, I wanted them to be very controlled because I wanted to have a point. But I don't have a point today. It's more that I am fascinated by a conversation that has been started first by Sean and then sort of continued by people reacting to something Sean said. And I wanted to put it forward here today because one thing I think I'm always learning and 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 feel uh, excited to continue to learn is that I don't have to come down one way or the other about a thing. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like with the culture today, you learn about a story and it can be from, you know, Kevin McCarthy and January 6th down to, you know, Zendaya is not going to the uh, the Met Gala next Monday. And you kind of feel like, well, I need to feel some kind of way about this. But oftentimes I don't know how I feel or I don't have strong feelings, but I feel like the there's societal pressures to not only feel something, but to feel it strongly. And I often don't. I am very intrigued by Sean Mendez, but he very much is an enigma in the sense that I don't come down any way about him. I like looking at him. I like the sound of his speaking voice. I imagine to his many fans, and it seems like there are many, I mean, in the millions from the looks of it, I'm sure they really enjoy his singing voice. I'm sure it's a pleasant singing voice. Maybe I'll experience it one day. I can't can't guarantee that, but maybe I'll listen to a Shawn Mendes song. Actually, I want to Google right now. Who sings? That's what makes you beautiful. Oh, that's One Direction. Oh, okay. Well, I like them, I think. I like that song. I like Harry Styles. Um, but I wanted to talk about Shawn, not Harry Styles. Although, maybe some parallels. But, okay, April 19th 
was when this story kicked off and and as is sort of the uh, de facto mode for a celebrity in the 2020s, Sean Mendez took to the notes app. Uh, the time cone on his notes app says 8.37. Don't know if that's AM or PM. It appears he has one bar on his cell phone, but he's on Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi seems strong and he's got a little bit below half a battery. Maybe ancillary, but I find it relevant. So this is what he writes. Oh, sorry, I can confirm it's PM because the, oh wow. So the notes app is 8.37. The tweet came out at 8.38 PM. So what I'm gathering is this is very much, you know, off the cuff. He wrote this and he was ready to post. Okay, he writes, quote, Sometimes I ask myself what it is that I should be doing with my life. And what I always hear in return is to tell the truth, to be the truth. I feel like that's a hard thing to do though. I'm afraid that if people know and see the truth, they might think less of me. They might become bored of me. So in those moments of feeling low, I either put on a show or hide. The truth in current form is a 23 year old who constantly feels like he's either flying or drowning. Maybe that's just what it is to be in your 20s, IDK. Or maybe that's just me. The truth is, I really do want to show up in the world as my 100% true, honest, unique self and not care what anyone thinks. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I really don't care what people think and I feel free. Most of the time, it's a struggle though. That's the truth. The truth is, even with so much success, I still find it hard to feel like I'm not failing hyper-focused on what I don't have, forgetting to see all that I do. The truth is I'm overwhelmed and overstimulated, LOL. The truth is also that I'm okay. I'm just trying to tell and be the truth. I like to think that maybe me saying this might resonate with some people. Now you might expect there to be more to this note, but that is the full note. I, I just wanna reread my favorite sentence from this note. I'm just trying to tell and be the truth, which I think is such a, a, a complex thought to both tell the truth while being the truth. So really you are telling yourself if you are the thing that you are telling. Hmm, poetic maybe. So this kicked off a big news cycle, you know, as often happens when a celebrity takes the notes app. Just doing a cursory Google right now of the name Sean Mendez, these are the headlines. ABC News, Sean Mendez shares honest note about his mental health struggles. E! Online, Sean Mendez shares honest message about feeling, quote, overwhelmed and overstimulated. Yahoo, Sean Mendez admits he constantly feels like he's either flying or drowning in candid new post. Cosmo, read Sean Mendez's emotional open letter to fans posted last night. And finally, BuzzFeed, my favorite headline, Sean Mendez on his mental health, colon, I'm overwhelmed. Hey, I too am overwhelmed. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast or just existing in the world today feel overwhelmed. And in that sense, I think we can all relate to this, but what are we really relating to here? I mean, the feeling of overwhelmed is so universal that I think conflating that admission with the idea that it somehow connects all of us is sort of a false truth. Something that you'll hear coming up in this podcast that 
I've been thinking about a lot after the fact is Harvey Firestein, who is today's guest, talks about this idea that we're so conditioned to believe uh, often that we are all the same, to not see the differences in ourselves, but to realize that, you know, we're all just human beings. And sure, that is one lens with which to view the world. But what Harvey posits, and something that I, I really am aligned with, is this idea that no, actually, we're all quite different. And that is a great and fabulous and wonderful thing. And so I think a lot of people, you know, in reading the quote tweets from this Sean piece, are feeling this connection. I'm just like Sean. I too am overwhelmed. But the reality is, he is like, I'm guessing by the number of followers he has, that he is a very wealthy person. He's also very conventionally attractive. He's also a white cisgender male. Um, there's a lot of privileges he has in addition to money. And I think money buys people a lot. They say money can't buy you happiness, but I've spoken to a lot of people with money who, who you know, beg to differ. But all this to say that, and again, I'm not knocking Sean for this post at all. I mean, I think, great. I, I sort of appreciate any time a celebrity removes the veneer. And I also just, I like seeing a notes app moment from a celebrity. It always just sort of hits in a way for me. But I think the reaction, this idea that in him sharing that, and this is a belief that he holds, that other people are going to relate, read this and relate to it, I think is interesting because it's not that I don't relate to the things he's saying, but I find them such a base form of relation. Whereas I'm thinking about Molly Shannon's memoir, Hello Molly, that I just read, and the stories she reveals in it, you know, two of which are, you know, the fact that she lost her, her mother, her sister, her cousin in a car accident when she was just four years old. Um, and she also shares uh, the late in life coming out of her father. And those are two really specific stories to Molly but I bet there are people out there that can relate. I bet there are people that lost a parent at a very young age or have dealt with a parent coming out as LGBTQ plus later in life. So although her circumstance is remarkably unique, there are touch points, right? But to simply be overwhelmed, I mean like, welcome to the world, buddy. But at the same time, I, I don't want to dismiss his feelings. And I, I have to imagine maybe there is a 15-year-old out there that reads this post and feels a little a kinship. I was going to say maybe they feel less overwhelmed, but does finding out that someone else feels the way you do when it's a negative feeling, does it lessen that feeling? I don't think so. I also just sort of question this idea of like celebrities positioning themselves as relatable figures because at the end of the day, they're not. Often they're not. It's not to say they don't deal with some of the same struggles we do, we, us plebeians, but, but, but the way in which the world in which we live is very different. You know, Our privileges are different. Those listening to this podcast right now all have varied privileges, varied points of access. I mean, it's just, anyway, I guess what I'm getting at is I feel like this quote, this admission, this, this poem, kind of read poetically. I felt like my delivery kind of like elevated it. I'm not going to lie, but I'm just, I'm not sure what it really did. And yet it clearly had an impact, not just on some who might earnestly find something in this, but in a very earnest news cycle that picked up this story and sort of positioned it as 
Sean Mendez is opening up about mental health. And as, as we all know, I was going to say as many of you know, but I think we all know mental health is such a buzzword today in our culture, but I'm not sure what his opening up really does for anyone outside of Sean Mendez, but Hey, Sean Mendez deserves he has every right to open up and, and we have every right to read into it. Now, there are a lot of people reading into this quote as this sort of being him teeing up what some feel is an inevitable coming out. I'm not really here to comment or speculate on that. I don't really care about Sean Mendez, Sean Mendez's sexuality. Um, I just enjoy looking at him and I enjoy looking at people of all varied genders and sexualities. So that, that I'm less concerned with. I do want to mention Sean's follow-ups because uh, I really enjoyed them. So uh, he wrote shortly after on Twitter, I'm honestly so okay. I just want to communicate with you guys in a real honest way. So I just typed I big old note out for you, LOL. Let me repeat that just so you don't think I'm stumbling. So I just typed I big old note out for you, LOL. That got 83,000 likes as of this recording. Wow, remarkable. Then shortly thereafter, more, 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 he says, and I guess I'm like, damn, if I'm feeling this with all of the blessings I have, I imagine there must be so many people feeling this and just don't want them to feel alone. Listen, that's admirable, right? This, this connection that, that celebrities of his stature have with their fan bases. And again, maybe people do feel less alone reading this, but I just think it's interesting knowing the machinations of the news cycle as they exist, where I think he has to know that, you know, going on Twitter and putting this notes app, excuse me, this notes app message out is going to lead to this news cycle. And it's going to lead to many people being like, are you okay? If anything, you know what, you know what my takeaway from this, I think is, you know, figuring this out in real time as I speak. I'm kind of just like, I wish this, I, I feel bad because my sense is that he is not surrounded by the right people. I don't know, maybe that's cruel of me to say, or maybe that's like unfounded. It's a sense that I get, you know? I wish for him or for anyone that has these feelings that they have a medium with which to express them that is maybe a therapist, maybe a best friend, maybe a parent, who knows? But I also see that, he feels like offering this up is, is, is a service, right? He, you know, and, and that it's admirable and maybe it is, who am I to say, but being that I'm so interested in this subject and in my himbo King, I wanted to throw it to some of you to gather your thoughts on what you make of this moment. So I asked people to record voice memos and generously once more they have. So let's hear from some of you. Hi, Evan. My name is Trey. I'm from Ohio, but I'm currently living in Florida. Um, I kind of understand what Sean's trying to say in his little tell-all notes app thing. Um, I'm currently 23, too, and, you know, it's kind of like we're happy and life's going good, but, like, we're sad and kind of depressed sometimes because are we doing enough? You know, like, what else is there that we're missing? Um, but, yeah, that's all. Bye. Hey, Evan. Cameron from Philly here. First of all, asking people to record voice memos on 420 is really homophobic. Secondly, I'm a diehard Swifty, so I'm very used to unpacking Easter eggs from cryptic tweets. All you have to say is he wrote the word truth 10 times in that message to himself and his fans. Is the upcoming 10th track on his studio album called Truth? I don't know. Charlie from New York City. It's giving men be like, you don't know the demons I'm fighting. 
and the demon's just bisexuality. This is Kevin from Chicago. I feel like Sean just needs to get over it. He's in his early 20s. If you're not absolutely losing it at all times in your early 20s, you're honestly doing it wrong. So he should just focus on being young, hot, successful, and rich and worry about what he's doing with his life later on. Hi, Evan. My name is Andrea, and I am from uh, San Francisco. And with Sean Mendez, on one hand, it's giving himbo energy. It's giving... I'm saying a lot of some stuff to say nothing, but also, like, I think it's kind of sad that he has access to so much, like, money and resources, and he's has so much attention, but he feels like he can't be himself. It makes me wonder if the people around him, his team, are, like, encouraging, if there's label shenanigans. Um, but, yeah, you know, 2023 is hard. Like, poor kid. I mean, again privileged white man but still i don't know what pressures he's under so that's what i have to say hope you're doing well evan i'm christian from london um um all i've got to say is he knows what he's doing i don't know what he knows and what he's doing but he's doing it and knowing him hey i'm taylor i'm from philly um in 2017 sean mendez gave this interview to genius behind the lyrics about stitches where he said quote feeling lonely in a crowded room is one of the realest things i can think of unquote and then said he was sensitive to all types of pain because quote i have a really sensitive skin unquote so i feel like this is another sensitive skin moment for sean and it's really hard to kind of understand is he maybe just like a big parody of a pop star who's to say because there's no way someone, well, I guess maybe a 17-year-old boy could be like, having sensitive skin has exposed me to real pain. But I feel like it's a kind of a similar vibe. Have screenshots of the interview, too, if you want. Mwah. Hey, Evan. Zoe from Boston. I think Sean's little note app is actually a very accurate portrayal of what it's like to be 20. Um, you literally just hate your life, and you're super confused. Everything sucks, and your mom keeps telling you to get a better job. At least that's my experience. So, you know, it resonated. Hello, Brad from London here. I am just wondering how Sean managed to write a thesis without saying anything. And it's giving Camilla a run for her money when she left Fifth Harmony with the notepad notes. Carol Loffridge, Atlanta. It's giving fair OP. My name is Mauricio. I'm from Peru. And I just have to say, this sounds like an early 20-something crisis. It, it, it just sounds like what a lot, if not most, 20-somethings feel at that age. And also, honestly, he's doing it like in front of the world. So that makes a lot of sense. And also, if him embodying the truth isn't like RuPaul does hyper pop like rupaul does charlie xcx on his latest album i don't want it if, if his being the truth is justin Timberlake's man of woods he's already kind of doing that so maybe do that in private all right so there you have it we we have no conclusion but we have many thoughts to think which feels very aligned with you know the sean mendez ethos I think I'm actually going to go when i am done recording and listen to my very first sean mendez song and who knows, maybe I might be standing the king of pop shortly uh, hereafter, you know, who knows. Um, but yes, much to think about and little to think about at the same time, which 
is not the worst thing. But, 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 I want to throw to you someone that I think is so different from Sean Mendez in so many ways, might share some things in common, which is the great Harvey Firestein. You are going to hear in this interview that Harvey is not charmed by me in the least. I was reticent in the moment after we recorded uh, about whether or not to release this interview because it didn't quite go as planned. And yet when I listened back to it, I had a different experience. I don't think Harvey doesn't like me. Um, I just think that Harvey is in a press cycle for a book and is probably being asked a lot of the same questions and finds it exhausting. And one thing I heard him say uh, during his appearance on Mark Maron's podcast was that with all of the great work he's done in his life, all people seem to want to ask him about is working with Robin Williams on Mrs. Doubtfire, which is something I had hoped to ask about. I, I was not granted <laughs> or afforded that opportunity, as you'll hear. But I have a level of uh, understanding sort of about how this all goes. And though I didn't find Harvey to be remarkably friendly, I found it to nonetheless be a really valuable conversation and not a bad interview. And I will take some stuff away from this interview, both, both how he conducted himself and ways in which I can better conduct myself moving forward. So I do not think we had a great connection. And I think that I've done interviews, hopefully you've heard interviews that I've done in which I really connect with the guest. We did not connect, but... I really just appreciate that he has, he is his whole self and he brought that whole self to the interview unabashedly. He didn't sort of acquiesce to me. He stood in his truth the whole time. And um, I don't know, I admire that. I really like him even more, despite the fact that I don't think he likes me. I don't think he dislikes me. I just don't think, again, I don't think there was any connection, but I'm grateful to have spent this time with Harvey. And I think, I think I'm still pretty proud of this interview. Um, was it the interview I anticipated? No, but isn't that a great thing about life that like, sometimes you get on the roller coaster and, and, and sometimes you don't quite know where it's going. Sometimes you look up and you see the whole course and you see, oh, we're going to flip here and it's going to, oh, there's this big downhill. But other times I remember there was this um, indoor roller coaster at Kennywood Park in Pittsburgh when I was growing up. And I remember when it opened, it was so exciting because it was like, you don't know what's going to happen. You're indoors, you're in the dark. And you kind of just got to strap in and say, okay, the lights are off. I'm in, let's go. And that's why I kind of feel like this interview turned out in the end. And, and you know, when I rode that, uh, that uh, roller coaster at Kennywood, I, I ended up really loving it. It wasn't my favorite. I'll be honest. I really, I'm Thunderbolt loyal, which is this great wooden coaster. I like an old school wooden roller coaster because you can kind of feel everything. But nonetheless, there is value in different kinds of roller coasters. And this was a different kind of roller coaster. So without any further ado, an interview that I thought I wasn't proud of, but I think in the end, I kind of am the great, the talented, the powerful himself without fail, which I love. Harvey Firestein. I almost said Harvey Weinstein. Oh my God. Harvey Firestein. Shut up, Evan. He is a legendary actor, playwright, and screenwriter, a four-time Tony Award winner, and an Emmy nominee for a guest spot on Cheers opposite former actress and current Scientologist Kirstie Alley. He made his stage debut as an asthmatic lesbian cleaning woman in one of Andy Warhol's few theatrical ventures, 
pork in 1971, but it was shortly thereafter that he had his first hit with the play and film Torch Song Trilogy, which he wrote and co-starred in both off-Broadway with a young Matthew Broderick and on-Broadway with Estelle Getty and Fisher Stevens. He won the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Play for the role. According to a PBS special, he proved to be a key figure in promoting the idea that contemporary gay and lesbian life with no apologies and no climactic suicides could be a viable subject matter for contemporary drama distributed through fairly widespread venues. He wrote the book for the musical Locajo Fall, winning another Tony Award, as well as the book for a stage musical version of the film Kinky Boots with music and lyrics by Cyndi Lauper. He appeared on Broadway as Tevya in the 2004 revival of Fiddler on the Roof and in 2008's Catered Affair, as well as the 2011 revival of Locajo Fall. He is perhaps best known for his 2002 Tony Award-winning performance as Edna Turnblad in the smash Broadway musical Hairspray, a role that he repeated during a 2016 live televised production co-starring Ariana Grande. His myriad television credits include The Simpsons, Murder, She Wrote, Ellen, Sesame Street, Family Guy, Nurse Jackie, Smash, Bojack Horseman, and Big Mouth. His film credits include Mrs. Doubtfire, Bullets Over Broadway, Independence Day, Mulan, and the upcoming Bros. You can read his New York Times bestselling memoir, I Was Better Last Night, available all places you can buy books. And you can enjoy him right now, for he is the dynamo, the force, the unapologetically grand Harvey Firestein. Shut up, Evan. Hi. Hello. How are you today? Busy. <laughs> Busy. This has I been quite, it. this has been quite insane. So where are you? I'm in Los Angeles in a hotel room at the moment, but usually in downtown Brooklyn. I'm trying to look at the hotel room. Is it nice? I'm trying to look around. It's, it could be better to be honest with you. It's Where in downtown LA. So I'm at the I don't know that one. I don't know that one. It's, it's fine. We make do. Anyway, uh, well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I cool. devoured the book and I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm excited to get into it. All right. Okay, let's do it. So let's start with your fabulous new memoir. I was better last night. I want to start by commending you on the breadth of the book, which covers so much of your life in a way that feels both broad and nuanced. When you reached out to your friend, Shirley McLean about writing this book, what advice did she give you? Look, who else are you going to ask for Shirley McLean? You know, she's right. written 3,500 books on her many lives. Um, so, so I figured it was the right person to ask. Um, she said, let memory be your editor she said don't plan it out um memory will will edit out the bad stuff and and sort of lead you and i thought okay um but i was more worried about the dead people because to tell your own story is is one thing you know you have total charge of that and that's your business but there's so many people in my life who did not live to tell their own stories who did not survive um, AIDS and, and, and other things and died so young that I felt uh, this was a chance to tell some of their stories also. And Shirley said, you're cool, but um, you will be telling it through how they affected you. 
no matter what. You can't really tell their story. You can only tell your own and you'll be telling their story through how it affected you. So allow, once again, memory to do that. And that's what I tried to do. Um, obviously, I'm nearly 70 years old. To cover that in 400 pages uh, meant picking and choosing. So I left out all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll and just <laughs> concentrated on the rest. No, we got a little bit of sex with the trucks. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think you got, well, you got the trucks, you got back room, you got a few affairs. Yeah. Though I, I, I was thinking for my follow-up book, I would just write about boyfriends that I didn't write about in the book. Mm. Um, and I thought I'd call it bottomless. I absolutely love that idea. I have to say, though, I'll have more questions about the trucks shortly because oh, okay. that was a, a segment I particularly uh, latched onto. Well, how, um, wait, wait, wait. How old, how old are you? I'm 32. Oh, so the trucks were long gone before you were born. Well, long gone, but I like hearing about it nonetheless. It's like a, a part of a gay New York that feels so of a different time, but also I feel like there's a reigniting of that sort of... Uh, Activity. I, I hear the rambles is really popping again these days. So well, uh, you know, the, the the truth is that that memory smells so much better. Mm. Things smell yeah. so much better when you remember them rather than when you were there. Mm. And and uh, it's probably much safer too. Other so if the rambles are popping again, are they safe or other? I mean, I didn't go to the rambles very much because I would have had to get back, you know, because you were drinking down in the village and then, yeah, so yeah, then to go to the Rambles, you have to go all the way uptown. And also it was pretty dangerous. I, I only had, I think I, I went up there really under 10 times and I don't think I ever had sex in the Rambles. I mean, from what I hear, I think it was a, a reaction to COVID was that cruising sort of uh, was Rock back was, on the up and up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But more on that in a bit. Um, unlike okay. most celebrity memoirs, you, the celebrity, are also a writer. And I feel like that really distinguishes this book in many ways. Like your prose, for instance, are just a lot more sophisticated, for lack of a better word. Now, I'm wondering if there were any unexpectedly challenging parts of writing this book outside of the actual writing process, but more into the sense of like the having to pull on memories that maybe had been left unpulled for reasons maybe you were conscious of or maybe subconscious. That was the hardest question I've ever heard in my I life. Know. That was really complicated. Simplify, I'm a stupid person. Simplify that for me. Well, okay. well, well, what do you want to know? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you anything you want to know, but I have to know what the hell you want to know. I guess I'm just wondering if there were any memories in the book that you were less keen to share. I know you mentioned, for instance, talking about dead people. That was something that you were concerned about, but were there any other memories? I know you talk a lot about your family, for instance, that you were reticent about? No, no, no. Um, um, once I decided to write the book, I, I said, I'm going to write it truthfully and I'm going to write it as, as truthfully as you can. Nobody totally tells the truth, uh, but, but as truthfully as I could. And I didn't leave out, I left out a couple of things that I have a friend who's a, a therapist. And I said, would this help anybody? Cause it's so specifically to me. And I said, we're talking about that, help somebody else. And she said, nah, that's just to you. And I think two things she, she said, eh, nobody gives a flying fuck. So, um, so I left those out. Um, and then I was much more conscious about what I wrote about other people. I really tried to not be mean. I tried. I tried to be fair. You know, the, the, as the old saying goes, there's three 
stories, you know, there's, there's his and his and then the truth in between. I really tried to be fair enough to, to, um, to not blame anybody for something that I was to blame for, <laughs> but also be truthful. Um, I, I certainly left out details that would hurt some people. Um, I changed a lot of names. <laughs> but, but that doesn't mean I lied about them. You know, and I, you know, it's, it's sort of funny. The gentleman that that tort song is mostly based on the Ed character. So he read the book. I got a, I, I get this email from him saying, um, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. You did a fabulous job, and um, and you were so kind and wonderful to me. You know, um, it, it, it was just great. I, I loved reading those sections. And here's what you got wrong, and then give me a whole list of. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You know, because we're all going to remember what we remember and what we think is important. I mean, my brother, um, after reading the book, he said, um, do you want to know the actual truth about that or that or that? And I said, no, because this is what I knew. There might have been other stuff going on behind my back, but I'm writing what I knew. And let me write it first. And then then I then I let him tell me. And, you know, I like uh, that approach. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, you, you can only live your life. And I was writing about my life, so. Mm. Harvey, I'm going to try and simplify my questions a little bit because I think oh, I good. can be a little long-winded. I think that I... I, I it's okay. I really... In such a way. I enjoy, I enjoy hearing somebody else talk after a couple of weeks of doing these. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Now, I was struck in learning about your upbringing in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and how traditional it was. You write, quote, there was a time before my spiritual nullification that I wouldn't misbehave in my house simply because the rabbi passed by our front door at least six times a day, coming and going from prayers. He'd know. I'm wondering what other memories you have of that period in your life. Oh, uh, well, obviously I have a lot of memories because I lived there until I was probably 17. So I had 17 years of, of life there. But, you know, it was... Um, if for those in your audience who don't know, they would know my neighborhood because it was the neighborhood of Welcome Back, Connor, um, Saturday Night Fever, The Honeymooners, uh, French Connection, the big, uh, the big chase scene under the high, under the elevated train. That's all my neighborhood, Bensoners. That all takes place in Bensoners. So you know who those people are. It's a lower middle class neighborhood. Um, and had I stayed there. It would have been a little dicey for me uh, as an effeminate male. Um, I went to a high school where there were tough kids um, and, and it, and it kind of was dangerous. I didn't get in trouble because my school was so overcrowded that they had to put some of the boys in home ec. And I was one of those shoved in home ec with a bunch of really tough boys. And so they were given these sewing projects and I would do everybody's sewing project. And then I got protection. Mm. I, 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 I traded my, my sewing skills for protection against the, the tough boys. They were called the park boys. There was a little park by Cephalo Junior High School. It's a little park that was kind of dangerous. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was that kind of a neighborhood, but I got out of there at 13 because I got into the High School of Art and Design, which was in the city. And so all of a sudden I was in a world of 
all gay kids. Well, we had some heterosexuals. Yeah, a few, right? It was the uh, law that had bust them in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, busting the homosexuals or the heterosexuals? The heterosexuals. Yeah, yeah. You got to get yeah. a few in there to kind of just, you know, even things out. Because you lose your federal funding otherwise. Exactly. It makes sense. Um, you mentioned your spiritual nullification, and I'm wondering at what age that began to happen and how it came about. You know, kids have funny ways of looking at stuff. I I don't think I ever believed in the in the big man sitting in a in a big chair watching everything you did. I did believe in the rabbi walking down the block seeing what I did. But as some big man with a white beard, it just seemed absolutely silly to me. But then you go into your periods of your know, spirituality. So, you know, you're, you're burning incense and candles and, and reading Aleister Crowley and, and, and discovering magic and reading tarot cards. I did learn to read tarot cards and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, because the hoogly googly, uh, that stuff, it's much more interesting. Well, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, these days, um, it's much more interesting to believe in taking a drug made for horses than to get your shop for, for COVID, you know, same thing you know except those are adults and we were kids anyway well stupid stupid can stay stupid does not have a bad by date you know it doesn't go away so i never really believed in 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 god in heaven and all that especially when you start studying what what that all means do you know if you were a fabulous wife in the Jewish religion, if you're an absolutely fabulous wife and, and you're pious and you take care of your husband and your children, you do everything right. You do all your prayers and keep a kosher home and all of that your whole life. Do you know what your, what your eternity is? You get to be your husband's footstool. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? Mm. Yeah, who's going to believe in that? Well, there are people who do. Anyway, so I didn't believe in all that stuff. Um, but I think... I really think it was when my father died and um, my mother, um, who was on the religion, not on the religious side, but she sort of believed. I think when he died, she lost her faith. Though she said she found her faith. <laughs> but, but I felt that. I felt, I, I did, I felt that. Yeah, no, I think that's the way, I, I do think that with that kind of a life, um, that's the way women have to be. They had so much work to get done and so much responsibility in that life. Well, in any life. Before we continue, let's take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we are back. Another thing that I was struck by in the book was, I would call it maybe your gender ambivalence. You've never seemed overly concerned with being a man, whatever that means, and have spent much of your life performing as other genders. Is your own gender something you think about a lot? 
Uh, not anymore. I do. I do obviously think about it because the younger generation has done this new job. You know, my generation, when we were fighting for our freedoms, we fought for sexuality. We were fighting to say that gay and straight, same difference, no real difference. The plumbing is different or whatever. But beyond that, it's all the same emotionally and um, even physically, it's not all that different. Um, and, and, I, and that was our fight to say that we were equal, even though we did not uh, share the same sexual proclivities. Um, this generation has come along and said, okay, that sort of solved argument is, is done, finished. Um, now let's move on to gender. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think it's fascinating um, this this not this idea of non-binary, this idea of is it called compet, C O M P H E T. You've never heard of this? I'm Com familiar. It's, oh, here's the concept. Compo and I hope I'm stating it right. Right to you. Complain to you, not to yeah. me. If I got <laughs> it wrong, all complaints go to you. Here's what it's. You can look it up but I think this is my understanding of it. It's called compulsive heterosexuality. So we're born into our families and without even realizing it, we are pressed into heterosexuality. In, in a, and then you have to fight to find your way out of that compulsory um, um, standing and find your way in the world. Kind of an interesting concept, I think. Um, and if you take that on to gender, so that which you are born with physically um, is 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 defines your role. Um, I, I just think it's real. I think it's so many questions, so many questions. And I love questions because questions mean interest in life. And I find life interesting. So I find it all uh, interesting. Hmm. But do I ask myself, but do I ask myself any longer? You know, do I say to myself any longer, are you a boy or a girl? Not really, because I found a place that's comfortable for me um, where I can have, I can express my female and my male sides and I can have it all. And that's sort of nice. Sounds lovely. It is. <laughs> Speaking of uh, heterosexuals, you uh, dedicate this book to the radical fairies who flew before me. And yes. I always have tried to express to heterosexual or cisgender people what a radical fairy is or what it means rather to be a radical fairy. And I always sort of come up short. Do you have a way in which you sort of identify what it means to be a radical fairy when speaking to people outside of the community? I think, it's, I think it has to do with the level of danger. I think a radical fairy that I'm talking about is are people that lived in a, in a way that was absolutely dangerous to their themselves physically. Um, they could be arrested at any time. They could be thrown out of their homes. They could be uh, jobless. They could be uh, um, beaten, killed, certainly, um, and still found a way or found it impossible not to be who they were. Um, and who took on the, the the job of fighting? You know, I had some I had some producer once said to me, "You know, gay people didn't live together until after Stonewall." And I just I said, "Excuse me, I gotta go call Gertrude Stein because I gotta tell her she's gotta move that Alice out of there." 
<laughs> I mean, where they get, where heterosexuals get these ideas that we somehow were born in the 60s. And, the, you know, so, so unfortunately, our history has not been so well told. And that's our job. We need to go back and retell our history. We need to bring people up to, to snuff as to who we are and what we are. Um, but that's, that's part of our job. And there are people doing that while also moving forward. Hmm. Speaking of doing your job, you joined the movements like the Gay Activist Alliance, uh, the meetings at the Worcester Street Firehouse and those of the Gay Liberation Front and the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. I feel like it's very rare to be able to be in conversation with someone that was in rooms like that. And I'm just wondering what it was like to be there and, and what was going on at those meetings? The meetings usually work about, you know, an hour and a half. The first half hour to 45 minutes was fighting about who would speak first, whether it would be a gay man or a lesbian, because uh -huh. that's what we did then. We fought with each other. Lesbians didn't want to be in the same room as gay men. Made. Gay men felt the lesbians didn't represent them and, and everybody fought with everybody. Um, I know, I know I'm making fun of it, but it actually was true. These absolutely ridiculous fights would break out um, over that. And then it was, and then it's, it's like, what do we want to fight for? What is it we're fighting for? Are we fighting to keep our jobs? Are we fighting to be visible in the streets? Do we want, you know, you had the Mattachine Society, which felt we should all wear white shirts and skinny ties. And if we look like them, they'll, be, they'll accept us. Then you had drag queens. And without the drag queens, we'd still wouldn't have been a stonewall. You had them saying, we're going to be exactly who we're going to be and, you know, up yours to, to the rest of the people. Um, so you had, you had all these factors that had to come together and form a movement um, that really happened with AIDS because we had to stop fighting. Well, it's not true. We still fought each other. Should we close the baths? Should we keep the baths open? Do we teach safe sex? Do we do we say, you know, so we need to fight the government? Where is the government? Is, is Fauci, poor Fauci, is, is he an enemy or a friend? I mean, we still fought over everything anyway, but it did focus us. And um, the lesbian community, especially when gay men could no longer give blood and remember, the early day of, days of AIDS, we needed blood because we didn't even know what the hell, you know, we were trying blood transfusions. We were trying everything to, to clean the, this disease up. Um, it was the lesbians who came to our aid, an organization called Blood Sisters, um, which I don't think gets written up half as much as it should have, but, but all of a sudden we became a community that the AIDS made us, but it's also because we were no longer invisible. It's because they, as, as I say in my play, Safe Sex, you know, they, they don't know who we are, where we are, uh, we're this great invisible underground and, you know, we're magical. And now because of AIDS, they know that we're doctors and lawyers and teachers and priests and mothers and babies. Now they see us everywhere, hospitals, courtrooms, classrooms. We were gay and now we're human. And that's what AIDS did. AIDS made us, whether we liked it or not, made us human. And, uh, and at the same time, we had the whole outing movement happen then because a lot of gay people who were in the fight for their lives um, were watching these closeted people 
just cashing the checks and living the good life and, and not doing any good for anybody else. And so a lot of people got angry and started outing other people, which was terrible because it made for very bad spokespeople. You know, if you felt you had to hide who you are, not a good spokesperson, but at the same time, gave us more, more visibility. Well, if Rock Hudson is gay, then, you know, any man could be gay. Can't get enough of Shut Up Evan? I don't blame you. That's why you have to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Shut Up Evan, where you will be able to find advanced access to interviews, bonus episodes, video clips from the interviews, cut for time questions, and so much more. You don't want to miss out. I am fully committing to making the Patreon a much more robust experience for season three. So again, www do people say you know www.patreon.com forward slash shut up evan i don't want to draw a lateral comparison between aids and covid but the reason i bring it up is because i remember that period in march and april of 2020 when covid was beginning and you had people sort of like you know coming to accept what it was and then also you know discovering the fact that they were going to have to make lifestyle changes, you know, for instance, wearing masks. I'm wondering if you remember those beginning months of the AIDS crisis before the word AIDS even existed and the community itself was still trying to understand what this thing was, let alone grapple with it. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I remember because I was there. I, I, you know, um, Court Miller, who was playing my lover in, in Toy Song, he would come in every day with a different something, different complaint, you know, he, he had this uh, uh, allergy or he had that allergy and today he had a, a skin thing and the next day he couldn't breathe and you know we thought he was the the greatest um um uh, faker in the world <laughs> couldn't possibly have all these symptoms um so i was there and then as we started just you know we're, we're bringing in articles from ned levy our pianist was a great reader and he would buy every newspaper and he would tear out these articles and we'd read these articles on grid and gay cancer and you know and just trying to figure it out it was it was it was scary beyond words and and it was frightening and it was as you watched the news spread especially in the heterosexual community and you saw them turn against us you saw people stop going to restaurants i mean you talk about covid it's the same thing I watched it again and you know what I can watch it with amusement um though I don't think 950,000 dead Americans is amusing maybe I, I don't understand something but I don't think that's amusing but um but I did watch the, the, this panic because it was the same panic um straight people stopped going to restaurants because all the waiters were gay they stopped going to theater because of the gay actors and they might spit on them they they um um gays became something to 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 avoid um when somebody died of aids the family would go in first thing they did was throw out the lover from the apartment you know steal all the good stuff and throw the rest in the garbage and erase that person families refused to pick up bodies Bodies piled up, not because they weren't families, not, but a lot of um, of uh, funeral homes wouldn't deal with AIDS patients. Um, some hospitals wouldn't deal with AIDS patients. Um, it was a, a very frightening, frightening period. You write about, and, and poignantly so, about a lingering feeling that the heterosexual community let our community down 
And I'm wondering if- No, they let us die. I use the word die. Die, excuse me, let us die. Yeah, they let it, they said, they said, I'm glad it doesn't affect me. And I'm really sorry for you. And I got a date. I'll see you later and left us to die. How do you reconcile those feelings decades later? I don't, I imagine that doesn't go away. No, I don't, and I don't have to reconcile them. I saw it. You can't deny it happened. I was there. So, um, you know, what was it everybody? Of course it wasn't everybody, but there were enough. And even when I wrote my play, Safe Sex, you look at those reviews, you know, here, uh, many of the reviews you can actually see in the review. Oh, he's being ridiculous. AIDS is not going to be here that long because safe sex is about uh, is a play where nobody has AIDS, just about what our, how our lives are going to change because of AIDS. And, and they just came and said, oh, he's being absolutely ridiculous. There'll be a shot in the, or a, a drug in a couple of uh, months and this is going to be over. And, you know, what's he talking about? And gay people would say, well, we fought too hard for the sexual revolution to give it up because of some disease and, you know, and we still got AIDS um, you know, 40 years later. I'm wondering if you can recall your meeting with Ginger Rogers, because I actually think it's relevant. To no, leave it in the book. About. No, no, <laughs> you have to buy the book. Okay. You cannot get every story out of the book. You can't do that. Okay. You got it. You got it. Some stuff must stay in a book. Fair. Okay, let's talk about the trucks a little bit and, and talk about yeah, them. Yeah, that's what you really want to talk. You don't want to talk about Ginger Rogers. You want to talk well, about I mean, I do like that story, but I'll, I'll save. I'll let people know that there's a really enjoyable Ginger Rogers story in there's the book, which of... tells you a lot about the climate and also has a move on to the blah, blah 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 blah. Okay, so about the trucks, which for people that don't know, was a loading dock of a warehouse on Washington Street where empty trailers were left overnight, and in the warmer months, gays would gather to fuck. You know, often anonymous. I'm wondering what memories you have of the trucks. I mean, I know you write about it. Some in the book. I don't want to give it away. Well, I was going to say that if if I got any more, if I got any more specific than than what's already in the book, there'd be a different rating on that book. You know, it's it's. I'm very honest about what went on in the trucks. It was it was anonymous sex. It was you know, it was in the dark. It was that which goes on in the dark. And boys are boys. You know. It's not, it's, uh, you know, boys that have zipper will will have sex. You know, it's, you don't have to go much further than a zipper um, if it's boy on boy sex, if you want. And, um, and, and that's what it was like. It was, it was wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. See you later when my Jones is coming down. That's, that's what life, that's what life in the trucks was. And it was very good. A lot of people who worked very hard, um, would run there, get off, and they could go home and sleep. They didn't have to have a conversation with anybody or, or get it. You know, it was it was a good way to, um, to, to take the pressures of the day off. I think one thing I really enjoyed about this book so much was you, it seemed rather that you always were very comfortable with who you were and that being gay was not something that you struggled with internally, which I feel like is a story we often read about. I wanted to read a quote back to you that I found really poignant and get your thoughts on it. You write, quote, at this point in my development, I no longer worried about my sexuality. I had eased into a groove that allowed me to be whatever the hell, whenever the hell. I was comfortable with my gay identity and at ease in a world of gay and lesbian artists. Heterosexuals were outsiders. Even the vast majority of gays, whether in or out of the closet, were only distant cousins. 
And I love that because I think it says a lot about the internal strife of our community, which you even mentioned at these meetings that you attended, this sort of infighting that happened. And I'm wondering sort of uh, what it was like uh, rather, rather what you meant by that. Well, the idea that not all gays are in some sort of brotherhood. Look, I, I was raised um, in school to have this, this sort of brotherhood day, you know, where we'd like, you, you know, like UN day, where we'd all stand with the different flags of nations and say, we're all, we're all um, the same and we should all appreciate each other for all being the same. And, you know, and that's been the message for a really long time, but I, I've been in the world a long time. Um, and uh, there's one thing I know for sure, which is no two people are the same. Two brothers aren't the same. A mother and father aren't the same. We're just not the same. We're all spectacularly different. And, um, and I've always felt the message should be we're all different and let's appreciate and respect each other's differences instead of trying to find out what makes us all alike, which has not worked. You know, we've been on that path a long time and ham white. So maybe we should try the other thing. When none of us are alike, I wrote a play called Casa Valentina about heterosexual transvestites in the 1950s in the Catskills. Now, if there could ever be a more homogeneous group than heterosexual transvestites in the 1950s in the Catskills, you showed them to me. When I did my research, which had a lot of their letters and magazines, publications, interviews with them, and I even met several of them, and Catherine Cummings, who was really my guide into that world, just passed. She just passed. Um, I found that none of them were alike. You would think they'd all be identical and none, one enjoyed underwear, one enjoyed gowns, one enjoyed petticoats, one wanted only to look in the mirror, one wanted photographs, one had to go in public in order to get, one only did it in the basement, one said, uh, uh, I should never have sex. Um, somebody else said, well, I'm going to have sex only with heterosexual men, because when I'm in drag, I'm a heterosexual woman. They were all completely different. They got off differently. They did it differently. And if a group like that is all going to be different, then, then everyone's going to be different. And that's what I say. Let's, let's stop trying to put a label on everything and let's accept people for the differences that they have. That's why I find it fascinating, if frustrating, to, to enter you know, at this age uh, the, the, the world of non-binary. It is a challenge to me. I don't particularly like using the word they and them. I find it insulting to the person I'm talking to, but that's what they've chosen. And I feel the same when we were younger and we used the word queer and there were gay people, all the gay people who said, how dare you use the word queer? We fought to get rid of that word. Okay, they needed to accept that we needed to go through that phase. Or there's a story in the book about using the word fruit and how that got me in trouble. Um, Everyone's experience is what it is, but let's try and, and respect each other's experiences and what we have to go through to get to where we're going. Well said. That's why I write the books, Cookie. Before we continue, let's take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. 
If you were to look in my fridge right now, beneath the shelf of Topo Chico, you would find cases of Can. These are my currently in rotation batch, as I keep party packs stowed away as well. So what is Can? Can is a social tonic microdosed with cannabis that gives you a light and uplifted buzz, but with no hangover, fewer empty calories, all natural ingredients, and no regrets. Best of all, it tastes fucking good. So sure, I drink it for the THC CBD effects, but I also just enjoy it as a refreshment du jour. Blood orange cardamom is my favorite, but the grapefruit rosemary also slaps. For more information, including where to find it at your local dispensary and delivery options, follow at drinkcan with two N's or head to drinkcan.com. That's D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com. And we are back. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on PrEP, uh, pre-exposure, prophylaxis, medications that greatly reduce the risk of HIV transmission and have therefore brought about a new era in gay, unprotected sex. You let out a heavy sigh just now. Tell right. me more. I don't like making making drug companies rich. I just don't. And I don't like having to have a whole community that's on a drug um i just don't like it i i know i know that people who take prep um, um then go and test and make sure that their their bodies numbers and all that are still good but if it was so good for you you wouldn't have to be doing those tests would you um i i, I don't like that that there's something that that um is being put into my brother's uh, bodies um that's may not be good for them in the long run and um, and I don't like and I don't like making drug companies like I said have them wealthy. I'd rather that they found the cure for AIDS. And why haven't we been able in forty years? It's just a virus, you know. We're not talking about a mysterious virus that is constantly changing on its own. It's a virus that we know about, and why we haven't been able to eradicate it is. Um, a political question that I still ask, you know, and so did Larry, Larry Kramer, you know, up until his death, he was still screaming that. And, you know, and it may be because we're old and we, we remember a time when, you know, also a line from safe sex, remember Krebs, remember, <laughs> remember the clap, you know, when, when, when gay, when gay things that we passed to each other were so easily washed away. Anyway, so yes. So do I love prep? No. Am I glad it's there? Yes. Do I want my brothers sick? No. I want everyone healthy. Do I want drug companies to get rich off the fact that we're trying to have a good time? No. Any more than, I mean, I felt the same way about the mafia, you know, when the mafia ran all the bars. What are your thoughts on the state of gay porn and the rise of OnlyFans? I have no, I have no. No thought. I have no thought. I have a friend who, who is in the press and, and he sends me links to all this new porn, you know, like for me to watch. And I, I, I'm an old classic kind of guy. I still like my old porn. Do you have any favorites from back in the day? I'm thinking like a Jeff Stryker. <sighs> No, no, no. I was so in love with Zach Spears and um, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman um, as a gift for my birthday one year when we were doing hairspray. He got Zach Spears to come and we all went out for, for, uh, for dinner um, after, after hairspray. It was lovely. I just love very, that. He was very nice. He was a very nice man. And I was also friends with... Um, Oh my God, his brain just went out. His name just went right out of my brain. Um, uh, he has his own company, Israeli. Um, oh God, 
anyway, cut Michael it out. Michael Lucas? Michael. Yeah, Michael and I were close for, for, for quite some time. He still produces, doesn't he? Yeah, I only ask because I sort of miss the era of like the big gay porn star, like the marquee gay porn star. I feel like they're because there's so much porn being generated these days by people at home. Right. You can do it. You can do it on your phone. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I like a big porn star. Oh, yeah. See, I, I, I think I still I think I still prefer the, the amateur thing. There's something sweet about, you know, let's do it ourselves. But yeah. You know, visual can only take visual can only take you so far. It's true. It's very true. That's why you got to go to the the ramble. That's why you have to um, go. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to ask about Mrs. Doubtfire, and I was all right, Cody. About- you have like you have like two minutes more, and that's it. That's so, it. Yo, honey, that's it. Okay, I've got my next interview to get to. Okay, well then I'm gonna jump ahead. Um, yeah, you jump me- ahead. Let me ask you about Hairspray. Um, okay. You did not mention the film adaptation in the book, which starred I've never John seen Travolta. it. Well, I've never right. seen it. And I know Since... you mentioned on Watch What Happens Live, you've never seen it. Um, right. Were you consciously not watching it? Yeah, I didn't get, I, you know, my contract for for writing that, you know, for doing the changes on the, on the script that I did, um, did not have me in on the movie. They, the two gentlemen whose name on it, they took the million dollar check for writing the movie and I didn't get a penny. And so um, I felt, why, you know, why bother watching it? It had nothing to do with me. And, and uh, you know, it's not a mean thing or a hateful thing. I, I have no, I have no bad feelings about it. I, when people say they love the movie, I say good. It had nothing to do with me, you know, it's, so I watched, you know, I, I think I, I say in the book uh, over somebody's shoulder and uh, on an airplane, they were watching Hairspray. And I looked over and I saw John Travolta, who's sort of in a rubber thing. And um, it reminded me of, of, you know, some rubber, I don't know. Anyway, I looked over, I saw that. There's a, there's a story about Carol Channing watching Barbara Streisand in, in Hello, Dolly. And the story is simply, the longer the film went on, the happier Carol got. And I think, that's it. I think that was, like I looked over, I saw that and I went, nothing to worry about and went on with my life. Mm. Um, I often have uh, friends or fans of the guests call in and I have a call in from one of your Hairspray co-stars really quickly. <laughs> I was looking through your book, Harvey. It's amazing, so many great photos. It's interesting that you chose a photo of you're bowing with a different Tracy Turnblad behind you. What's that about? What's that about? The funny part is that I had to go back and find a photo of me and and her that I could put because some stuff you had to pay. You, well, you obviously you understand that you have to pay for photos in a book and all that. So we had to look. But I also we Marissa and I have a dear friend Bruce Glickus who's a photographer. And I said, Bruce, the photograph of Marissa and I has to be one of yours, or she's going to be angry. And so we went. And there's a lovely picture of Dick Latessa, Marissa, and I together that Bruce Glickus talk and whatever and that. Yes, and the bow picture I used was because I wanted to show that other dress. The show was originally, I had a big red dress that finished the show, big red. And then when I did, when I presented Robin Williams with a Grammy Award, um, uh, Rod Stewart and I did it together. Um, William Ivy Long created that hot pink dress with the confetti on, oh, it was so fabulous. And so I said, I'm putting this in the show. Also, because it matched 
Dick Latessa's clothes and Marissa's clothes. The red dress was the only red dress in the entire show. The pink dress matched everybody else's clothes. And so I wore that from then on. And that's the picture I wanted. So it had nothing to do with Miss Marissa. It had to do with, I wanted to show that dress. I'm glad we cleared that up. Okay, yes, two last girl, questions. Can't say no. Yes. Oh my God. You I know. One I know. Minute, I know. I know. One minute. That's what it. Are you, okay. What are your thoughts on the casting of ding, straight? Ding, 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 ding. What? Come I'm on. wondering for your thoughts on the casting of straight people as gay or trans in order to bait Oscar voters. I know you grappled with whether or not to cast Richard Dreyfuss in one of your film adaptations, knowing it could garner such accolades. Right. And it's a big you know, topic of conversation these days. Yes, I know. I know it is. And uh, you know, and uh, let me say that the thing is. We do it so much better than they do. You know, um, gay people have been playing straight people for so long and we like do it, nobody ever knows. But you can usually tell when it's a straight person kissing, you know, making believe they're gay. I mean, we can tell. It's like English actors do really great American accents, but American actors do terrible, it's the same thing, same thing. We are the English actors, and we can play heterosexual, but they can't play gay. They try, and I and and, and I have seen many do a really good job. I mean, I really enjoyed Brokeback Mountain. Now, was it because it was such a good film or whatever that I could forgive they were heterosexual? Maybe, but um, usually the, there's something held back. You know, it's it's um, the example I usually use is you can have the greatest young actress in, that's ever been born. She can have the most fabulous natural talent. She could have studied, she's a great actress. She can't play a grandmother because it's just stuff life has not yet shown her. And so that's the problem. It's this stuff that life hasn't shown and that's it. And our time is up, my love. Not even and one so, last. Oh, no, I can't. I, I have you, so, somebody's waiting there. So I bid you adieu and have okay. a good life and get out of that cheap ass hotel. Oh my God. Okay. Thank you so much. Shut Up Evan is hosted by me, Evan Ross Katz, and produced by Ryan Killian Kraus with distribution via ACAST. Special shout out to Alden Peters, Matt Storm, Sean Ross, Hank Kelly, and the myriad others who have contributed their talents past or present. For more Shut Up Evan, binge seasons one and two, and become a subscriber on Patreon for bonus episodes, never before seen clips, and more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.